With the alarming truth about idolatry in our nation, here's Pastor Ed Ray. We're a nation that's filled with idols. We don't have the statues in our entranceway, but there are people who worship at the altar of Aphrodite, sex, the temple of Zeus, power, the temple of Bacchus, intoxication. You see, we don't use the names. We don't use the name Pluto, but that's the god of wealth. That's the god of money. So we have more than enough gods in our society without having the statues. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I say let this world know me by your love. It's not hard to see that our world is given over to idolatry. It's been said that your God is the master passion of your life. And if it's not the true God, it's an idol. Well, how do we turn things around? Is it even possible or have we gone too far? We get some hopeful insight on how we can make a difference today on Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read of a city that was exposed to the gospel and turned to the Lord. They became so infectious in their faith that they not only reached their city, but also the entire region. An inspiring model for us today. To learn their secret, join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6 as Pastor Ed begins an example not to follow. Right after I got saved, Raylan and I went to a church. It's not far from here, so I have to be careful. I'm not going to divulge. But we were there for a concert. It was a very enthusiastic church, okay? And they're very sincere. But the place I noticed was a little rocking. Everybody was rocking at first in worship. And then finally, the pastor called for a Jericho march. Some of you know what that is. Most of you don't. A Jericho march is where you start out, and in this church, it would go down around in front of the aisle, and then all the way up to the back, and then around, all the way around, and then back again. And you wouldn't do it once, you'd keep doing it. And it went from just a little jog to some serious running. I mean, they didn't believe you'd really worship until you were sweating, okay? <laughs> That's not the Holy Spirit forcing you. To, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He comes into your life and he gives you power to share the truth of who he is with other people. And he wants to restore, rebuild, reinvigorate your life with him. So do you have that power? Do you feel like you're lacking it? Ask him right now. God, come back into my life. Fill me up to overflowing. I promise he won't make you do a Jericho march. We've never done one here. He wants to give you power. And he will if you ask how much more are given to them that ask. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, God's word, in much, oops, affliction, with joy. How do you put those two together in the same sentence? We have affliction and we have joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the people there in Thessalonica, as soon as they embraced Paul, then they were being opposed. Paul was only there for three weeks, it would appear when you read Acts chapter 17. But Paul came 
he probably didn't look real good. He'd been in Philippi, if you know the story in Acts 16. He'd been beaten. He and Silas were beaten, thrown in prison. So it probably came with a big lump on his head here. You know, his eyes still a little black underneath that. And he comes and he shares with them the gospel. And the gospel, the true gospel, is that you will be opposed that there will be persecution. And some of you in this room know this. You're, I know you, and your parents have disowned you. And some of you are struggling with your children because you, too many times you shared Jesus with them. They don't want to hear it anymore. And that's a form of persecution. So Paul is telling them, warning them, that there's going to be an adversary who will come against them. Now, that's not the way the gospel is often presented, particularly in these United States. If I was standing up here with a, you know, five-carat pinky ring and a $5,000 Armani, that is funny, isn't it? $5,000 Armani suit, you know, silk tie, and had a Rolls-Royce concourse and the number one parking place with the gold lame you know, all around the parking space. And I said, come to Jesus and you'll get this. A lot of people would come but for the wrong reason. What's the motive? Just selfishness. The gospel is exactly the opposite. You lay down your life. You lay down your selfishness. You say, God, I'll take whatever it is you want for my life. And here's the paradox of that. When you do what God wants you to do, you'll find satisfaction, completeness in things you never thought possible that would even possibly give you the fulfillment they do. But because God knows what you were designed for. When you surrender to him, he fills you with not just the desire, the want to, to do the right thing, but the power for it to happen. And you find yourself radically changed and you go, goodness gracious, I'm a walking miracle. Because you know who you are. For most of you in this room, if I say the biggest miracle here is me and I know it, you'd understand. Because you're thinking, no, 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 Pastor, the biggest miracle in here is me. Because I was so far from the gospel, you couldn't get there with a rocket ship. But you could with Jesus. And he'll get you there. Thank God, right? Thank God. So, verse 7. So that you, and Paul is coming to this church and these group of people, remember the church are the called out ones, and he's saying, you have become examples in all of Macedonia and Acacia who believe. The word examples is the operative word here. It's the word tupos in Greek, T-U-P-O-S. It's where we get our English word type or typewriter. Some of you remember that archaic old device that it had this little molded letter or character number and you'd strike the key and the molded part would hit up against the inked ribbon and then it would deposit that image on the paper. That's the word that Paul uses here, that you are like a typewriter. You impress other people. You're infectious. You're contagious when you talk about Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit takes those words and energizes them and it stays with people. So they became the example, literally the forged pattern. A pattern is like you would use a seal and press a, a ring into it that had a certain image on it of you or a, a word or your signature or something. Or in that day, they minted coins, you know, one at a time. They had an anvil, a hammer, and a punch that had this 
typos on the bottom of it, and you'd put a little copper disc in there, and then you'd hit it once, and there'd be a coin, a little slow, right? If it was copper, it was the cheap one. If it was silver, it's more expensive. But that's the way Roman coins were made. And the Greek coins had this word typos as the word for pattern. They became the pattern. They became the prototype, the example, the church, the living replica of what a church should be like. And so there they are. Paul is saying, these are the representative believers. Here's what a church looks like. You want to know what church looks like? It, notice it doesn't say anything about budgets or about the building or about the programs of the church. No, no, it's talking about people who are radically transformed, who go and tell other people who see the reality of it in their life, and then they surrender. And then so on and so on and so on until the whole world is touched. Do you know that the fastest growing church in the world is not in America? It's in China. How's that adversarial thing happening there? Really strongly against them, but they have joy because God is doing a work in them. Verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord, God's word, sounded forth. Great word sounded forth, important word. Come back to it in a minute. Not only in Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and Acacia, that's southern Greece, the whole peninsula, but also in every place. The word means the entire Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire went from Britain, where they got tin in England, Britain, and all the way to India. That was the Roman Empire. Paul said, the word went out to the entire Roman Empire. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. You're a marvel. People know about it. How do they know? It's an echo. The Lord's message rang out from you, the NIV says. The word is echoneima in the Greek language. It's where we get our word, echo. Something that is said and then it reverberates. It erupts, it thunders is another translation. Yesterday up in the canyon, as it often does, there was this big thunderhead and there was some lightning. And then you'd wait a second or two and then it'd come this thundering, this roaring, and it would echo through the mountains. That's the word that Paul is using here. They echoed or erupted God's word across Europe that then would come to these United States that then would go to South America and Africa and China, where people are still being persecuted, even to their death today. North Korea, Nepal, Vietnam, Muslim countries in the Middle East where believers huddle, Iran. We have brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran, and Iran especially, whose lives are in danger. Many of them have been killed in their church services. I know, personally, I have met some. So, God has gone out, an echo, an echo. I read about a California politician who went to Switzerland in the Alps and went hiking one day, and he uh, was looking for Echo Canyon. There literally is an Echo Canyon there. When you, in the Swiss Alps, when you say a word, it comes back very clearly. It's a solid rock. And so he's all alone, and so he looks around, and he says, hello, comes back, hello, yeah, that's great. He says, goodbye, comes back, goodbye. He looks around, this American politician says, I'm the greatest politician in the world. It comes back, baloney. <laughs> Just, sorry, I digress. But the idea here is that there's an echo that comes back. Now, Paul 
has experienced some of this in every place where he went. The word had gone out that they had done something especially powerful and that they had turned. That's no small feat. We'll hear more about this issue of idolatry in just a moment. But we wanted to pause and welcome those who are just joining us here on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Now with part two of today's lesson and more about idolatry and its pervasiveness from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, here's Pastor Ed. Verse 9, they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry, how we came to you, how we looked, they left Philippi with battered and bruised, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, this city is right next to Mount Olympus. The city was filled with temples. All of the Greek cities and the Roman cities were filled with temples and altars. In fact, when Paul went to Athens in Acts, he walked around the city and he saw on every corner an altar to a God and then temples too. And he began to speak about God Almighty. And they said, oh, come on up to Mars Hill. And so they took him up to the Acropolis. And it, it's really the, this rock, rocky outcropping where the college professors of the day, the university professors, would lecture. But people would go there, all these philosophers. Now, the philosophers of Greek antiquity had long been gone. Golden Age of Greece, 400 years earlier. But Paul, they're still chasing it. In fact, they still chase it today. If you go to Greece, if you're from a Greek background, I mean, no disrespect at all. When you go to Greece today, about four o'clock in the afternoon, you notice that little pubs and cafes and coffee shops begin to fill up with Greek men. And they're all carrying these worry beads, they call them. They roll in their fingers and they have heated debates. It looks altogether like, you know, road rage, but they're just having a little friendly debate. And all of a sudden they'll both laugh and slap each other on the back and then move on. That's what Paul ran into 2,000 years ago. They wanted to debate him about the God. So Paul says, I came into the city. I see you're a very religious city. You've got these altars on every corner and you have these temples and these statues. And I noticed one that said to an unknown God. So I came to tell you that I know who that God is. He's the God who created everything. He began to use that to talk about Jesus. But I want you to see how impacted the entire city was with idols. The same thing happened everywhere that Paul went within the Roman Empire. Now, this idea of idols may sound old to you, but let me suggest to you that it's not something from the past, it's something still going on to this day. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Remember when Moses came into a place and, uh, with the children of Israel, and there were these fiery serpents, they came out and bit the people, and Moses cried out to God, and God said, make a brass serpent, attach it to a pole, put it on a hill in the center of the whole camp, and everyone who looks on it will be healed. It's a picture of Jesus. He died in the center of the camp up on Mount Calvary, and everyone who looks to him for salvation are saved. But afterwards, the people saved that brass snake, and it became a religious relic, and they would worship it. Later, King Hezekiah had it destroyed. He called it Nahushten, which means just a brass thing. 
His point was, it's not a relic. You can't find God there. When your relationship with God begins to deteriorate, you look for religious places or religious things because you don't feel God's presence anymore. I grew up in that kind of a church. Lots of relics, lots of statues that people pray to rather than God, rather than the living God. Or how about that program, American Idol? Oh, we don't really idolize people, really. We have sports idols. We have movie idols. We have music idols. We're a nation that's filled with idols. Well, at least we don't bow down to the gods like that. Well, we don't have the statues in our entranceway, at least not most of us. Some of us do. (laughs) But there are people in this room, I know right now, who worship at the altar of Aphrodite. Sex. There are probably some people in this room that worship at the temple of Zeus, power. There are, I'm sure, many people in this room that worship at the temple of Bacchus, intoxication. You see, we don't use the names. We don't use the name Pluto or Putus, but that's the god of wealth. That's the god of money. So we have more than enough gods in our society without having the statues. Paul is saying, Christians, be careful. They'll draw you off. They'll dissipate your love for God. The idols, the world is filled with potential idols. Satan is a fisherman. He knows what lures to use for you specifically, and he'll dangle them right in front of your nose. And you'll grab that thing, and it has a sharp hook in it. Run, run, run. Turning from idols. Last one, verse 10. And wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, this is very interesting. There's five chapters in this book, and in each one of the chapters, Paul points to the second coming of Jesus Christ, his return. Paul thinks it's a very important subject for these, remember, brand new believers. They'd only been believers after three weeks of Paul getting there. Why is it so important? Because number one, it's the gospel. He raised from the dead. That is the central tenet of the gospel. That Jesus died dead, out, 72 hours. Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven so that you would know, I would know that he's stronger than death, he's greater than the grave, and he's going to do the same thing for you when you surrender to him. That you'll take your last breath here, and then your next breath, he'll be looking you right in the eye. That, yeah, that's God's promise to you. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is his promise to you that you will rise from the dead too. So that we're waiting for his son. We're going to get to this in chapter 4, and we'll talk about it in detail. But I'm one of those guys that believes that Jesus is coming soon and that there will be a rapture. And I'm just warning you so that you'll know that put me over in that box. Now, you don't have to agree with me. A lot of people disagree with me. But just know if you do disagree, when we get to heaven, because I believe we'll get to heaven anyway, whether you believe this or not, but when we get to heaven, I'll say, I told you so. And so you've got to live with that. So just be careful 
that when you say no to this, and you know, you might have to eat crow someday in heaven, but that's okay, we'll be happy that we're in heaven and it's all fine. In Jeremiah 30, the rat is Jacob's trouble, seven years of tribulation. That may be included in this, but certainly it's talking about the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Every person who has rejected God's free gift of grace will stand before him and give an account for the things that they did. The way to avoid that is to accept Jesus now and stand before his rewards judgment seat called the Bema judgment seat. Now, if you didn't understand what I just said, don't worry about it because we're going to go through it several times in this book. When we get to Revelation, it's very, very clear to me, maybe not to you, but I'm giving you middle-of-the-road Christianity, nothing unusual at all, okay? vast majority of informed, intelligent believers believe as I do. So teasing, that was a joke, okay? All right, the wrath to come, the judgment literally to come, and it is the word, the coming judgment. All right, so these people became a model church, as I would hope every person in this room desires, who spoke up gave their testimony, shared with others what happened to them, who turned from idols to the living God and are waiting for Jesus' return. So that's the simple explanation of what you and I are to do now that we are saved is to model Christ. Let me give you the best example, one of the best I know of, a missionary couple in India for a number of years, Paul and Margaret Brand, B-R-A-N-D, they were medical missionaries, both of them physicians. She was an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor. He was a surgeon. He became a world-renowned hand surgeon because he went where no one else would go to India. India has three million leprosy patients still today. And he went there and began to develop hand surgeries for people who were falling prey to the leprosy bacterium, actually. It's a bacillus. And it would kill the nerves. And so he developed all these various kinds of surgery, more than a hundred hand surgeries that his name is on. That's how long he served there. But they were the very first medical missionaries to ever go there and work with leprosy patients. Well, they have in their book the story of Sadan, S-A-D-A-N, who looked like, quote, a miniature version of Gandhi. We'll close with this. Sadan understood rejection because of being a leper. He was made fun of, kicked, and even turned away from some hospitals. Sedan said, I can still remember when Dr. Brand took my infected ulcerated feet in his hands. Dr. Brand and his wife were the first medical workers who dared to ever touch me. He had to undergo numerous surgeries of everything from tendon transfers, nerve stripping, toe amputations, cataract removal, so it wasn't an easy road. But despite his suffering, someone asked him what he thought about leprosy in his life. And he said, I must say that I am now happy that I have this disease. Apart from leprosy, I would have been a normal man with a normal family chasing wealth and a higher position in society. I would have never known such wonderful people as Dr. Paul and Dr. Margaret and I would have never known the God who lives in them. They were a witness that he couldn't ignore, right? Amen. 
Amen. Good example, Pastor Ed has just concluded with us to follow in Jesus' name. This is Grow in Grace. For a CD copy of today's message, give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or listen online at thepackinghouse.org when it's most convenient. And to help you grow in grace, we'd like to recommend Pastor Ed's daily devotional. It's accessible online at thepackinghouse.org. This month, we're featuring an excellent book by our friend in the ministry, Gail Irwin. It's titled, The Jesus Style. When Jesus taught us that the greatest must become like a servant, what was he driving at? We'll find the answer by studying the life of Jesus and his style of ministry. It's totally opposed to our natural leanings, so we need some help. Request a copy of The Jesus Style today and we'll send it your way for a gift of any amount to grow in grace. And please remember, it's your support that helps us bring these teachings to the radio every day. Please consider helping us continue this ministry on this station of yours. Give us a call again, 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. May God richly bless you as you grow in grace This program is listener-supported and brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Let this world know me by your love.